We do turn now toward the portion of our service where we read and learn from God's Word. And so let us turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 25, we will begin in verse 19. Uh, This is a new book within the book of Genesis. We've talked before about this phrase that shows up. This is the account of, we saw it last week when we looked at Ishmael's son, and it shows us dividing parts, portions of the book that kind of set apart as individual sections. This next section, the account of Abraham's son Isaac, will actually run uh, probably for nine or ten chapters until we get to the account of Jacob with which we will finish out the book. And so read with me beginning the account of Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis chapter, chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The time came for her to give birth. There were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, or they literally named him Harry. And then after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which literally means grabbing someone's heel. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom, which literally means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Let us pray. Our Lord God and Father, as we approach your word today, we ask that you speak to us. Speak to us uh, through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us words that will change us. Speak to us words that will convict us. Speak to us words that will help us be more and more like you. Words that will help us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But most of all, Lord, we humbly ask you today to speak, O Lord. Be with us in the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We're going to begin with the end of today's account in verses 27 through 34. We begin to see a bit of the conflict that was prophesied to Rebecca as she approached mm-hmm. the Lord and asked him what was going on in her womb as these two babies battled. That conflict was prophesied that two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated, one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. We're going to see this work itself out later on in the story. We're going to, in chapter 26, we're going to deal with Isaac and Abimelech as he uh, falls into the same temptation and the same sin that his father Abraham fell into in the city of Gerar. Um, But after that, we're going to begin to see the conflict between Jacob and Esau, the conflict between Rebekah and Isaac work itself out as as, um, uh, Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. But today we see that set up in this this last portion, the last half of today's passage, as, as Esau is described as a skilled hunter, much as Nimrod was in Genesis chapter 10. Um, Esau is shown to be driven by his appetites, and we see that he's a coarse man in the chopped and quick language of the middle portion of verse 34. He ate, he drank, he got up, he left. Jacob, on the other hand, is described as quiet or maybe civilized, could be another way in which that word could be translated. Jacob keeps the promises of God in mind, even though he seeks to go about securing those promises on his own. And... um, He is willing to seek delayed gratification in order to receive the reward that God had promised him through Rebekah in Genesis 23. Now it's also important for us to see in this contrast of these people that even though uh, Jacob is kind of pursuing the will of God that he revealed to Rebekah, it's not until much, much later in, in Jacob's life that he is actually driven by a desire Uh, for God and a trust in God. Esau will not show that trust in the future, uh, but Jacob will only show it after God uses Laban to push him and Esau to push him more and more into surrender and into trust. While Esau and Jacob are both really presented here as reprehensible, as, as, as somewhat evil in their actions, it's important for us to remember that God chose the line of Jacob to bring about a man by the name of Judah. And he chose the line of Judah as reprehensible as we will see Judah is later on in the book of Genesis. He chose the line of Judah to bring about a man by the name of David. And as reprehensible as David acted in his life, he chose David to be the ancestor of a descendant by the name of Jesus. And we're reminded in Matthew chapter 1 as that genealogy of Jesus is listed out, there are there, Judah is there, Jacob is there, Abraham is there, Rahab the harlot is there. All of these people are there that lead us to Jesus. Our Lord and Savior came to us through a line of sinners. Our Lord and Savior came to us through a line of re- reprehensible men and women who desperately needed a Savior. And through that line of re- reprehensible men and women came Jesus who brought us Salvation, salvation that was promised to Eve, salvation that was promised to Abraham, and salvation that is given to us uh, through His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we move back to the first portion of the story, we keep in mind that the end of this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Today I do want to focus mainly the rest of this sermon on the first portion of this passage because I think it well all of this passage carries very great import for us. But what God led me to this week uh, through the scriptures uh, was an understanding of intercessory per- persistent intercessory prayer as well as praying in times of distress. So first, I want us to look in the first portion of our passage at this idea of persistent intercessory prayer. Now, keep in mind, as we look at this, we're going to see Isaac fail in future chapters. But even though we see that today in today's passage, he exhibits a remarkable trust in God um, and a trust that he really learned from some of his father's failures. Remember how Sarah and Abraham acted when Uh, After a period of time, God had promised them a son. He had promised them descendants that would outnumber the sands on the seashore, would outnumber the stars in the heavens. And here they are after several years, not having a son of their own, not having a son through Sarah, not having a son through Abraham. What do they do? Sarah says, take Hagar, my servant, and maybe God will fulfill his promises through her. Isaac is presented with the same problem here. He's presented with the, with the fact that his wife was barren and that there were promised descendants that were to come through Isaac and through Rebekah. But did Isaac act the same way that Abraham and Sarah did? No, his response was this. Abraham prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. And we are introduced here to the idea of intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is something that is, should be a joy and a privilege for the Christian. We are not forbidden in Scripture to pray for ourselves. In fact, there are many instances throughout Scripture where people do pray themselves for themselves. Many of the Psalms are prayers on behalf of, of the psalmist praying for himself. And we see Jesus praying in the garden, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. But we are called to pray for one another. We can pray for others to be healed of illness or affliction. We can pray for others to be strengthened in struggles. We can pray for others by thanking God for his blessing in their lives. And we can pray for others, be it friends or loved ones, to be drawn into an understanding of their sin and an understanding of their need for saviors. Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And part of that process is intercessory prayer, praying on their behalf. And so Isaac sees this difficulty in his wife's life. He sees this difficulty in Rebekah and he prays for her. He goes to the Lord and he prays for her. And we're told that God answers that intercessory prayer. But we're given a hint a little bit later in the passage that this might not have just been a one-off prayer that God answered immediately. We're told here, beginning in verse 20, that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel. And then jump with me down to the end of verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. We're almost given the sense here in this passage that this, this period of prayer where, God, where Isaac went to the Lord to pray for his wife was a long-term endeavor. It was an over and over again going to the Lord and pleading with him 
Lord, be with my wife. Be with Rebecca. Fulfill your promise through her. She can't have children. Be with her. Over and over again, over these 20 years, Isaac went to the Lord and prayed on behalf of his wife, Rebecca. We are called to go to the Lord, and many times we do go to the Lord with our prayers, with our concerns. We think of that passage in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your minds through Christ Jesus, our Lord. How many times do we pray that prayer and within 24 or 48 hours when we don't have the peace where we give up, we're angry with God, we move on, God's not going to give me the peace He promised and we quit praying for it. Think of our New Testament reading today. The, the widow goes to the unjust governor or mayor of the city and she says, bring justice to me. And he ignores her for a time, but he keep, she keeps going back. She keeps going back. She keeps going back until he finally says, I can't take it anymore. I will work out justice for her so she will quit bothering me so that she will leave me alone. We see this once more in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 7 and 8, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. There's a building there in the language. Asking is a request given to God when a need is perceived in someone's life. Seeking is not only asking, but it is asking plus action. Knocking is asking plus seeking plus perseverance and persistence. Think of you're in a time of crisis and you need help and the only place to find help is at your neighbors and it's in the middle of the night and you might cry out to them. You might call them on the telephone, but they don't answer. So you go over and you yell outside of their house and yet they don't answer. And then you go up to their door and you just start banging and pounding and knocking on the door until the door is finally opened and they give you the help that you need. That's the picture that we have here of Isaac praying for Rebecca, this persistent over and over going to God, reminding him of his promises and seeking his face. We are called to pray for one another. We are called to be persistent in our intercessory prayers. But our passage today also shows us not only to be persistent in our intercessory prayers, but how to pray in times of distress. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Jostling there is actually a little bit of a weak word, a little bit of a weak translation. The word jostle uh, in the original language could mean to crush, could mean to beat or to batter. It really is a war word. It is a word of battle. It is a word of attack. It is a word of violence. Rebecca had two babies within her womb that we're seeking to destroy each other. That's the picture that we have here. We've all had, well, not all of us. We, 
ladies who have had children, you, you know what it's like to have that baby moving around in you and you can tell when that movement is just normal or natural or you can tell when maybe you've eaten something you shouldn't have and that baby is in distress in your womb. Imagine two babies in your womb duking it out. It's almost this picture of Esau and Jacob should have come out of the womb bruised and battered. They were fighting so hard within Rebekah. And Rebekah goes to pray for the Lord. And we have this beautiful sentence here that says, Lord, why is this happening to me? We're in the original language. It's just three simple words in an incomplete sentence. It's why. It's this. And it's me. It's almost as if Rebecca is in such distress that she can't even speak clearly. It's like, why this me? It is an embodiment of what we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28 or 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Have you ever been so crushed by life that you just don't have words to express it? The best sometimes you can get out is a groan or a creak or even a scream a wail a cry but words elude us because we are so emotionally distraught by the difficulties of life that we just can't express it why this And the Holy Spirit takes those groanings. The Holy Spirit takes that inability to speak and He carries it to God as a beautiful prayer. And God meets us in the middle of it. But it's important for us to remember that we, that we groan, that we cry, that we utter these ununderstandable words to God and to God alone. Because it is he that meets us in distress. Now, God did not remove Rebecca's distress. God explained to her how it was going to work out for his glory. He explained to her why. He doesn't always tell us why. He doesn't always remove our distress. But he reminds us, as we read in our catechism question, that even in the midst of that deep distress, hallowed be his name. He will overrule our distress for his glory. When we go to him, when we cry out to him, why this me? God heard both of their prayers and God answered both of their prayers. God calls us through this passage to persistent intercessory prayer. And God also calls us in this passage to reach out to him in times of distress he calls us to pray. Statistically, most, if many, if not most, people who claim to follow Jesus, we don't pray regularly. 
oh, we fire off a prayer here and there in the middle of a crisis or when something reminds us that God is out there. But for most Christians, there is a lack of a regular time of prayer and devotion. Donald Whitney says, gives several reasons for this. He says, people lack discipline and planning in prayer. Regular daily prayer takes discipline. It takes effort to, to take time to carve out bits of our day to spend specifically in reading the Scriptures and in praying. Another reason people don't pray is, you know, we don't believe it works. For whatever reason, people don't believe that prayer works. Uh, this may be due to cultural influences. Many people today who do not follow Jesus, if you tell them you're praying for something and God answered your prayer, they'll say, oh, that was just coincidence. Um, Whitney, referencing him once again, gives an anonymous quote that says, if it is coincidence, I sure have a lot more coincidences when I pray than when I don't. Um, or, you know, we don't believe in the power of prayer because maybe we don't do it enough to see it actually work. Some people lack a sense of the nearness of God. We walk outside, we go through our lives forgetting that God is close to us and wants to hear us. But the biggest reason that Christians don't pray is really simply because we don't know how. Many of us don't know how to pray, and so I wanted to give us some direction as we consider intercessory prayer and prayer in the midst of distress. The first thing Donald Whitney says um, that helps us to learn to pray is to actually pray. Now this seems a little bit counterintuitive to us whenever we start a new job, whenever we start a new endeavor. Um, we always want to learn about it before we do it, do we not? Um, I had a, a manager one time when I worked for overnight transportation. I told him, I said, you know, I'm a management trainee. There's one aspect of managing this place that I do not know can I sit with so-and-so on Monday morning just to kind of learn uh, how to, to do his job? So Jim looked at me and said, absolutely. Be here Monday morning at such and such a time and I'll have you sitting with David and uh, David will show you the ropes. I got there Monday morning, no David. Waited another half hour, no David. Jim comes out of his office. He says, you're going to get started? I'm like, you said David would be here to train me. He said, oh, I forgot to tell you, I was sending David out with one of the salesmen today. You're on your own. I learned to do the job by doing the job. How do we learn to pray? We learn to pray by praying. Now, you don't have to pray prayers like I pray here on Sunday morning. I've been praying for a little bit of time. Sometimes the best we can do is to sit there for five minutes with our Bible, five minutes with thinking about what we just read, and five minutes going... Okay, God, I'm in a time of distress. I don't know how to deal with it. Please meet me in it. Amen. That's where we start. Think of a baby. Babies don't study how to walk. They kind of walk by doing. We learn to pray by doing it as well. Secondly, we learn to pray by meditating on Scripture. I mentioned that we read Scripture, we meditate on it, and we pray. Scripture reading and praying should go hand in hand. If you're not used to reading Scripture, if you're not used to praying, don't say, okay, I'm going to read Scripture and pray for three hours tomorrow. Say, I'm going to read Scripture for five minutes. I'm going to think about and meditate and see where I find God in that passage for five minutes, and I'm going to pray about what I learned. Thirdly, we learn to pray by praying with others. We don't do this to copy them or to mimic their prayers, but to learn. 
Uh, Mike Fay wrote an article about his experience over three years of sitting with an older saint who spent time praying. He said he learned uh, things about prayer that he'd never learned before. He learned that prayer is a relationship between a father and his adopted child. He learned that God cares about everything, no matter how small. He learned the lesson that real prayer is biblical prayer. And he learned that God uses unanswered prayers at times to direct us into deeper trust in him. If you don't know how to pray, find somebody who's been praying for a while and ask if you can sit and pray with them. I'm going to flip that around a little bit here too. If you've been praying for a while and you know that God uh, has grown you through your prayers, find someone who doesn't know how and teach them to pray. And finally, the last thing we do to learn about prayer is to read about prayer. You could read books like Brian Chappell's Praying Backwards. It's really short. Donald Whitney's Praying the Bible. It's even shorter. Or the chapter in Kent Hughes's book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. Read his chapter on prayer. It's even shorter than that. Um, find something biblically, biblical and about prayer and read about it and learn more about it. But the most important thing we can do is to begin praying. We begin small. We can use a list. We need to be disciplined in cutting out the time. And fourthly, we need to know that God answers prayer. We are called to pray for one another. We are called to lift each other up and encourage them as the people of God. And part of that is remembering who the people of God are. Remembering their wants, remembering their needs, remembering their hurts, remembering their joys, and rejoicing with them and weeping with them. And we're called today to remember that when life is hard and the weight of this world presses and crushes us, God hears the prayer of the desperate Christian. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, help us to love each other enough to want to pray for each other. Help us to care about one another enough to lift them up in prayer, to know where they hurt, to know where they rejoice, to know where they ail, to know where they have met you, and to weep with them in prayer and to rejoice with them in prayer. And remind us as well that you hear the grunts and groans of your people as they are in distress. You hear us when we cry out, why this me? And you answer with your glory and you answer with your peace. As we leave this place today, help us to be a praying people. Help us to be a people that loves you enough to enter your presence and pray. Help us to be a people who loves each other enough to lift each other up in prayer. And help us to be a people who loves our community enough to pray that the lost find you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name, knowing that you hear. Amen.